Church family, if you have your copy of God's Word, and I hope you do, I want you to find the book of 1 Corinthians, whether you have a printed copy as I prefer and highly encourage you to bring to church, or you have an app on your device, I want you to find the book of 1 Corinthians, and as you turn there, I'd like you to find the fifth chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, as I was worshiping there to the side of the stage, and I couldn't help but think about those words, all my hope is in Jesus, I've been washed by the blood. And I love that line, all my sins are forgiven. One of the ways in which we never forget uh, the weight of our sin and the greatness of God's grace is certainly to celebrate the grace. But it's also important for us, while we do not dwell in our past, to be willing to hear what God has to say about difficult subjects, about subjects related to sin. Now, to be very honest with you, if you are a member of our church, you know that our pattern is to preach God's Word book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And so I have not chosen our passage today. I just chose to walk you through the book of 1 Corinthians several months ago. And in doing so, we come now to the second sermon in a new series that I started last week simply called, Do You Not no, I did not write those words. Those are the words literally taken from the English translation of the letter of 1 Corinthians written by the Apostle Paul. And not once, not twice, but seven times in chapter 5 and chapter 6, the Apostle Paul writes this phrase, do you not no, I, I showed them to you last week. If you have your copy of God's Word open, again, on a device or in a printed copy, you'll see that phrase mentioned in these ways in verse 6 of chapter 5, do you not know? Then verse 2 of chapter 6, or do you not know? Verse 3 of chapter 6, do you not know? Verse 9, or do you not know? Verse 15 and verse 16 both say, do you not know? And the seventh and final time he uses that phrase in chapter 5 and chapter 6 is found in the 19th verse of the 6th chapter where he says, or do you not know? It, it's a stern word. It's a rebuke. But Paul is writing to a group of people who he loves. He's got a lot of skin in the game. He's invested in them. And after he planted this church in Corinth and left, the church lost its way. Now, the first four chapters of the book of 1 Corinthians really have to deal with spiritual pride and arrogance. But as is always the case, when we make room in our life for pride, sinful pride, when we become spiritually arrogant, the moral sins will also begin to occur. Behavioral sins, sins of action, sins of thought, sins of relational nature. And so this is what's taking place. And one of the sin struggles that has invaded the church at Corinth was of a salacious and sexual nature. Now, again, if you're a guest of ours, I said last week, this is not a sermon series on sex. God has a lot to say about sex. He is not silent about this gift given to us that is provided for us, decided by God to be had inside of covenant marriage. 
But this is not a series on sex. It's not even a series on sexual sin. We know the world is wrought with sexual sin. We know none of us is immune from sexual sin. But this specifically is a series on sexual sin in the church. Not in the world, not in some distant life, not in some celebrity's life, but in the church, in the body of Christ. When a fellowship of believers is affected by the sexual sin in someone's life that remains unrepentant that remains ignored or justified. In fact, I would encourage you, if you were not here with us last week, to go back and listen to part one. It will help you greatly apply part two because chapter five is really a chapter that can be preached in two sermons linked together. Part one last week being the sad truth of sexual sin in the church. And I'd like to preach to you this morning a sermon simply entitled The Serious Truth of Sexual Sin in the Church. Last week, I shared with you the the terrible details of the letter. Now, not to confuse you, but the letter of 1 Corinthians is not the first letter the Corinthian church received from Paul. I know that sounds uh, rather contradictory, but it's not. In the book of 1 Corinthians and the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul references other letters. Paul's ministry especially during his missionary travel and his imprisonment, depended almost essentially and totally on letters. And so he would have written many letters that you and I have not seen and will never see. But through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and through the confirmation of the Spirit in the church fathers as they collected those early first century writings from the apostles, God chose and ordained that first and second Corinthians be seen as what it is, the inspired word of God through a human author. These other letters were important, they were significant, and they carried Paul's authority. But God in his sovereignty chose not to preserve them in what is called the canon of Scripture. But Paul had written on this subject before, which is why he was especially heartbroken of the current condition. Thus the phrase, do you not know? Do you not know? As if Paul is saying, I'm having to come back and revisit a subject that I should not have to revisit with you. And what he took issue with was not necessarily the terrible nature of the sexual sin. In verses 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, we're given an account of a man in the church who is having an adulterous, immoral, sexual relationship with his stepmother. That sounds like it's ripped out of some tabloid. It sounds like it's some late-night TV smut, but it was happening in the church at Corinth. But that's really not what Paul takes issue with. Of course, the sin is serious, and Paul tells the church that they should deal with this man. But what breaks Paul's heart It's the spiritual arrogance of the congregation to ignore it or be indifferent to it. To not care enough about God's standard to hold this man accountable. And so, if you were to backtrack and listen to last week's message, you will hear that Paul basically said, you have to deal with this and your arrogance is no good. But as is so often the case, when God delivers a hard command to his people, though he's not obligated to, I'm so thankful that he's not a silent God, that he speaks on difficult subjects. I was discussing this yesterday with Laurel. We were driving back from dropping our son off at college. Our 
first one. It was an emotional day. Someone asked me if I'd be emotional. I wasn't sure I'd be emotional. I got emotional. Part of that emotion is because I, I love him and I'm proud of him. The other part is it's not that I'm emotional or sad to drop a kid off. He's just not the one I'd like to drop off right now. <laughs> I liked him. <laughs> But in all honesty, we were talking about that, and somehow that conversation bled over to our church. And I think it's because he was our firstborn, and Laurel gave birth to him just before we moved here. We actually had to wait on that. That was pretty important. And so she gave birth to him in the city of New Orleans where we were living, and I was finishing up my Master's of Divinity degree, and you had already called me as your pastor. So Ty's birth and our uh, wonderful relationship with you began within a three-week period. And so his life and your life, his growth and your growth and our growth has all come together. And so every time there's a milestone in his life, I can't help but think of you. You fed him all these years. And, and when, I, when, I, when I talked about that with Laurel, I said, you know, tomorrow's message, it's a, it's a hard one. It's a hard one. And we discussed that. And just like that boy we dropped off yesterday, if I love you, i got to speak warmth and compassion and kindness and grace in your life. I hope that you see me laugh and smile a lot. But i got to speak truth, too. You, you have to have both. And, and if someone had to step in and raise my children for me, and if you want to volunteer, we can meet at the end of the service. But if someone had to step in, this is what I would hope they would do. Be truthful. Even when it's hard, be truthful. I have to be truthful with you today. This is a hard message. But hard messages is how iron sharpens iron. And God did not bring you here today to condemn you, uh, to, 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 to cause you to feel isolated or alienated. In fact, I believe, if you'll bear with me, at the end of this service, some of you can find healing and hope in an area you may have never brought before the Lord. So after those hard five verses from last week, Paul begins in verse 6 doing what we love so much about God's Word, unpacking the truth behind the hard command. And so when Paul is dealing with the seriousness of sexual sin, what we'll find is that first... He reminds them of the why. Why does this matter? Why is it not okay for the church to say, look, you live and let me live, and while we may go to church together, what you do in your life has nothing to do with my life. And by the way, and this is the message of our culture, who am I to judge you? And ultimately, that comes from a place of arrogance where we somehow believe that if we allow unrepentant, rebellious, immoral sin in our church, it won't damage us corporately or us individually. In fact, it looks as though Corinth had a trash can of morality alongside a terrible dose of superiority, which is why verse 6 says these words. Your boasting is not good. In other words, what are you boasting about? Do you not know, the first of the seven phrases, that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? 
Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul goes from a clear command, throw this man out of the church, to a beautiful theological analogy where he drops history right in front of them. Why does it matter that the church deal with any serious, unrepentant sin? As you'll see today, Paul doesn't just pick on sexual sin. Any situation where one of us is involved in repeated, unrepentant, rebellious, immoral sin, why can we not turn a blind eye to that? Well, if you think about the why in two ways, based on these first few verses, I would divide them this way. First, Paul talks about the nature of sin. you got to understand how sin works. And to illustrate that, Paul brings up one of the greatest subjects in the world, bread. I've cut my carbs again. I thought, Lord, of all the weeks where I've gone almost carb-free, I have to preach on leaven and unleavened bread. Everybody loves bread. And you love bread all the more when you give up eating bread. I mean, I used to notice a yeast roll. Now I stare at them. And the way the light over the buffet causes them to glisten with a golden tan. Lust can be my issue, but it's normally bread. <laughs> well, bread has been something people have eaten for millennia. And people basically make bread the same way they've always made bread. Now, there are people who would argue that we have a lot of processed stuff in it that's not good for us. I, I would agree with you. But bread is basically milled up wheat seed, turned into dough, and then baked. Nothing new there. But you can bake bread and it not rise. Some of you do that all the time. You ever tried a chocolate cake and get brownies? I think that's how brownies were invented. Somebody just said, no, 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 it never was meant to be a cake. It's a brownie. How does that work? Well, obviously, we have before us a plethora of choices, self-rising bread, baking powder of all sorts. But in the ancient world, and up until just a few decades ago, in our world, if you wanted to bake a beautiful loaf of bread, you kneaded your dough, and you added in yeast. Well, in the ancient world, to make yeast, you made it the day before. When you made today's bread, you take a small portion of the dough, roll it in a ball, and the women of antiquity would store it in water in open air. Immediately, because it is of an organic nature, bacteria would set in, and that dough would become what they called leaven. We would call it yeast. You didn't need much of it, and then you would bake your bread. But tomorrow's bread, as you needed that fresh batch of dough, you would take that ball of yeast, which is basically a fermentation process involving bacteria, and you would knead it into the dough. And that little bit of leaven 
would cause a foaming action in the baking process. In fact, I looked up the definition because I am not a baker. Praise God. This is what happens. Leavening agents make bread and other baked goods rise by causing a foaming action that traps air bubbles in the food as it cooks. The trapped air gives the final product a light and fluffy texture. I was fearful to put that up there because 12% of you just checked out of the sermon and began thinking about the light and fluffy texture of whatever it is you're going to eat for lunch. Others of you are checked out because you've trapped air bubbles from breakfast. <laughs> but this is how leaven works. Paul knew this. Every man or woman who would read this letter knew this. And Paul uses this the way all the biblical writers did. They took something as simple as daily bread, and they said, that's how sin works. While the positive effects of leaven in baking is good, one small piece of something left over, something sour, something that if you ate it in its current form, it would cause you to be sick, when put into the whole roll, infects the entire loaf. Paul understood this because Jesus understood this. You know what Jesus said in the book of Matthew? Jesus said, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He's saying, if you sprinkle any of the false teaching of their religious legalism into the gospel, you will miss the gospel. So beware of it. And so the nature of sin is that it is never contained, and even if you choose to justify a small amount of it, even if it's not in your life, but it's in the life of someone else within your faith community, I promise you it won't stay there. Sin, when left unchecked and unrepented, infects every person it touches. And so Paul paints the picture of the church in Corinth as a pure, unleavened roll, loaf of bread, cake of offering before the Lord. And he says, you've got to get the yeast out. And it reminds us of the way sin works. What did the half-brother of Jesus say about sin? James said these words, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, then desire when it has conceived gives birth to sin, and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. So sin doesn't come from anywhere. Sin comes when our flesh sees something of the world that we decide is wanting or desiring of our heart, and we begin to dwell on it, and then it leads us in, and it begins to affect every part of our life. So while this may seem very basic and very elementary, I believe it is biblically accurate. When you think about sin, especially sin of a sexual nature, especially sin of a moral nature, when you think about it sins that you commit in willful disobedience to the Lord, you really only have two reactions to them. You can repent or repeat. That's it. If you repent of your sin, God promises unending grace, love, and forgiveness. But if you don't, if you don't confess it, if you don't ask for forgiveness, if you don't move away from it, if there's not remorse in your heart over it, I promise you, you will repeat it. You think you will control it, but it will control you. And this is why Paul says you got to understand the nature of sin. But no sooner has he done this 
that he says you also need to understand the nature of salvation. I, I love what he does because all of a sudden we're tooling along in this deep, dark passage about sexual sin, and he brings up Jesus and Egypt and Exodus and the Passover. And it's important to see the story of God's redemption underneath this scandalous text. Look what the Bible says beginning in verse 7. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. Notice he says, as you want to be unleavened. He says, you're the church. God's blood has already been shed for you. You've been made pure and holy. So, so live out what God has declared you to be. And this is what he says in verse 8. He says, or excuse me, verse 7. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. What does Christ and the Passover has, have to do with sexual sin in the church? Well, I'm glad you asked. What is sexual sin? Well, it's slavery. What is any unrepentant sin? It's bondage. It's exploitation. It doesn't hurt you, even though it may be pleasurable in the moment. It hurts everyone around you. You've often heard preachers say, I certainly did not come up with this quote. It is not original, but it gets used a lot because it's so good. Sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. It, 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 it never pans out. When were people who loved God in bondage in the Old Testament? In the second book. The first book of the Bible is, let's try that again. The first book of the Bible is, the second book of the Bible is Exodus. Why is it called Exodus? Well, look at the orange signs above the doors to your left and your right. Exit. Exodus is the book of the Bible where the people of God leave Egypt because they're delivered from exploitation, injustice, slavery. They cried and cried out to God, and God sent a figure, a prefigure of Christ, a man named Moses, who would be their deliverer, and he would deliver them out of the bondage of Pharaoh under the blessing of God. And when Moses confronted Pharaoh, he brought before Pharaoh curse after curse after curse, and Pharaoh's hard-heartedness would not budge. And so finally God said, okay, I've had enough. I've done everything I know to do to you. Now I will bring forth death. And Moses told the people of the Hebrews, the Jews, those who would be future Israelites, though they'd not been there yet, he said to them, you are going to be released. Get ready. Pack your bags. And when the release happens, this is how you will be spared from the death angel. You will slaughter a lamb. And you will spread over the doorpost of your home the blood of that lamb, signifying your faith in me and your recognition of my holiness and that the wages of sin are death. And when the death angel sees the blood, he will pass over you. Thus the name of the festival was the Passover. But do you know what God told the people of Israel to do every year from the first year when they ate the Passover meal? It's in the 12th chapter of the book of Exodus. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove the leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. Why did God want them to eat unleavened bread? Because he didn't want anything made in Egypt in their life once he delivered them from Egypt. 
Now drop that in your life. God doesn't want you to live in any area of lostness he's already delivered you from. This is why they celebrated with unleavened bread. This is why he said, that which is yesterday's bread, sour bread, made in Egypt's bread, is not good for you anymore. I've broken the chains of your bondage, and I've spared you from death because of the death of a Passover lamb. And all that was to foreshadow a better Passover lamb. And that Passover lamb has already died. When we eat at the table as Christians, we don't eat having to kill a lamb. We eat bread and juice celebrating the lamb that was already killed for the sins that have been already forgiven of a body of Christ that's already been declared to be made holy. So God says, stop living in your past, and when sin sneaks into the body, get it out the way those Hebrew women had to get every speck of yeast out of their homes when they began to bake the leaven for tomorrow. There was no trace of lostness. And so, Paul says, we're not celebrating the Passover except for every day of our life. Every day of your life, your existence as a born-again Christian is a celebration of God passing over your sin and pouring out his precious son's blood for your forgiveness, which means you and I have an obligation not to die for our sins. There is no doctrine of penance in the Bible. You don't have to pay for your sins. They've been paid for. So it's not that we're obligated to pay for our sins. It's not that we're obligated to live guilt-written over our failures. We are obligated, though, to come to the festival, which is the Christian life, with purity, with sincerity, and with truth, which is exactly why the verse says these words beginning in verse 8. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of perfection. Is that what it says? Nope. It does not say perfection. I cannot serve Jesus in perfection today. I have never been perfect, and until I die or he calls me home through the great resurrection of his return, I will always deal with the ramifications of living in this body, a body that has not yet been redeemed. My soul's been redeemed. My body has not. And therefore, the battle against sin is real, which is why the Bible does not call the church to perfection. The Bible says Christ deems us perfect by his blood. So then what are we called to? We're called to a life, verse 8, last two words, of sincerity and truth. Give me a sinner any day that's broken over his sin, and I'll show you a man that God will restore. Give me a woman who mourns when she fails the Lord, and I'll show you a woman who will never be nothing more or less than a tremendous blessing to her church. In other words, so often when we crack open these difficult subjects, we look around us and we say, ooh, I'm not sure, this is uncomfortable. I feel like a spirit of legalism or judgmentalism. Who am I to judge other people? And we miss the point. The point is the Passover lamb that far is superior to any other Passover lamb has already shed blood to make white the dirtiest stains of your life. So... It is obvious, it is fair, it is just, 
And quite frankly, it's rational for the God who shed that blood to look at his people and say, you need to live like I've already declared you to be. And when you don't, there needs to be remorse and repentance. And if you think you're out of luck, my grace and blood is still flowing. It still moves. It's still powerful. So what turns the heart of God is not for a Christian to stumble or to fall into sin, though our sin causes him grief. What turns the heart of God is for someone to claim to know Jesus and yet show no repentance, no remorse, no desire to follow him with his word. That ultimately stomps all over the gospel. And that is a stench in the nostrils of God. And it will infect the whole loaf of a church if it's not removed. Which is why Paul does something pretty interesting beginning in the second English paragraph of this passage. He revisits the who. Who are we talking about here? You know, it would be really easy to read a passage like this and go, man, I can't buy a car. I can't buy a house. I can't send my kids to school. I can't do work. I can't be involved in commerce if I'm supposed to somehow separate my life from any form of any person who has any immorality in their life. Guess what? Paul agrees. In fact, I'll show you in this passage, Paul says if you're going to try to live your life free from interacting with people who are living immoral lifestyles, you're going to have to leave this planet. That's what he says. Look what the Bible says in verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter, that's that first letter I told you about, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. <laughs> now he has to clarify. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you'd need to go out of this world. There's nowhere you can go and not find sin and immorality. It's everywhere. Paul then clarifies. He says, but now I am writing to you not to associate. And that word, it's a, it's a doubly powerful Greek verb. It means don't mix up with, don't blend your life with anyone who bears the name of a brother. So a fellow Christian, a professing Christian in your faith community. He's not, he's not talking about Christians they'd never meet. He's talking about people who are doing life with you and professing to follow Jesus, yet living by a completely immoral standard and showing no remorse and no desire to repent. He's saying, that's who I'm talking about. And when he has those people in his mind, he returns back to the same idea we mentioned last week. He says to them, not even to eat with such one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? And then he closes by saying, God judges those outside. Let God handle the world. You purge the evil person from among you. It, it brings up the question, how do we interact with the outside world? I, I don't have to tell you that we are a sexually depraved culture. And the sexual revolution, which has now manifested itself into a revolution driven by a growing list of letters with a plus sign at the end because there's a constant redefinition of the new morality, it's really the fruit of the sexual revolution of the 60s and the 70s. I thought about many of you who are educators this week will throw the doors open onto our ELC, many of our local schools will open, the cheese wagons will roll, and the children will come onto our campuses. You talk to a retired school teacher who taught school in our community. 
a relatively conservative community in the Bible Belt in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And they will tell you that the vast majority of their kids certainly didn't come from perfect homes, and many of them didn't come from devout homes, but the vast majority of children being taught in your average classroom came from a two-parent home of a mother and a father. Now talk to the educators that we have in our church today, especially those who are missionaries in our public school systems that we gladly and proudly partner with. And they will tell you that the minority of their students come from a home with a mother and a father who are together and married and were married before the child was born and the, born has, the child has only known that mother and that father in that home, maybe different houses, but that home their entire short, precious, important, impressionable life. So we know that the destruction of the family is directly linked Two, the lie of the sexual revolution and the current lies that are barbaric of the transgender revolution that was, of course, driven by everything that came with the LBGTQ plus revolution that is now a militant agenda on, so on us. What do we do? We don't, we don't hate gay people. We, we, we're not angry at transgender people. We don't have any scripture that tells us to hurt or to hate so what do we do about the outside world? Well, we say yes to contact. We say yes to compassion, kindness, conversation. We say yes to sharing our convictions. There's no sin in loving and engaging and caring for someone who's living a lifestyle completely and totally in contradiction to the Lord you serve. In fact, I remember him saying, go be salt and light. But we say no to conformity and no to compromise. We do not conform and we do not compromise. It is not because we are hard-headed, hard-hearted, or stiff-necked. The Bible has not changed. God does not change. Can you imagine trying to follow a God who changes? God has defined our sexuality. God has defined gender. God is defined. And by the way, God is not only the definer of sexual perimeters, God is the creator of it. The problem in the sexual revolution that has manifested itself today in a moral revolution is that our culture worships at the idol of sexual pleasure and sexual identity, and they're asking sexual pleasure and sexual identity to do what it can't deliver on. I mean, I mean think about the vast majority of people in this room you are so much more than your gender, though your gender is given by God. You are so much more than your sexuality, though your sexuality is a gift from God given to you to be enjoyed inside of the confines of covenant marriage. But it's not the only thing you are. It's not all of who you are. It's a part of your life, but it is not all of your life. I think about the thousands and thousands of people I have known. I think about all of you. And of all of you, of every member of Church at the Mill, there are so many needs that you fulfill in my life. But there is only one church member at Church at the Mill that I will ever or should ever know in a sexual way. And that is the wife that God has given me. And that is true for every person in this room. And yet I'm completely fulfilled. I'm not in want, 
because it is in the right lane that God has given it. And by the way, if the world was right, and sexual liberation and sexual experimentation and this idea that there's somehow new and more genders than male and female as God created them in Genesis 1, in Genesis 1, if the world was right, you'd think they would find satisfaction. And yet there is always groaning for more and new and more and new, and it does nothing but destroy. We cannot abandon them. But stop being angry at them. They're acting like they don't know Christ. Do you know why? They don't know Christ. And I'm going to tell you something. If you work yourself up over this holy anger of how a lost world is living, you and the enemy in consort with you will use that as a deflection to deal with your own purity. It's real easy to find a lot of people who live a lot darker life than me. And if I spend my time condescending and condemning them, oh, ever so quietly, ever so subtly, I'll rob myself of the opportunity to stand before God and say, God, the difference between me and them is not that I'm better. It's that you revealed yourself to me. I was on my way to the same hell they will go to until your son saved me. So before I'm angry at them, would you search my heart to make sure I'm what I need to be so that you can use me to share your gospel with them the way you used other people to share your gospel with me. Give me a thousand men that'll pray that prayer. Give me women that'll pray that. Give me teenagers that will pray that prayer. And then our discussions of sexual sin and purity will always be done with humility. And when we fall, when we stumble, when we lust, when we sin, we will run to God's grace and we'll confess, not pridefully, but humbly of our sin. And his grace will cover us and he'll remind us of that sincerity and truth that we are to celebrate the festival with. I don't want yesterday's leaven. I want today's bread because it's better, it's good, and it's rich. Which then speaks to Paul reinforcing the what. What's he asking the church to do? And this is just hard. If I were to define the summary of chapter 5, I would use these words. I'm not a man of few words. I know this is wrought with run-ons. Bear with me. If I defined chapter 5, this is what Paul is saying. Discipline is the removal of a member from the church. Not a guest, not a visitor. From the church for unrepentant, this is so important. Church discipline has nothing to do with sinners who are repentant. It's unrepentant. Rebellious, immoral sin to protect the church's purity, witness, and to hopefully lead the sinner to repentance and restoration by having to experience the consequences of broken fellowship and Satan's effort to destroy his or her life. This is what Paul is talking about. And I'll be honest with you, I can only imagine how hard it was in a 21st or in a first century Mediterranean church. Most of the churches in Paul's day were in homes. Most of the Christians were in minorities. I told Laurel yesterday as we were discussing this passage, I can only imagine that the underground church in China or the underground church in Iran where there may be five or ten believers meeting in a village and no one else knows they're believers for fear of being killed or destroyed. And all of a sudden, one of them falls into unrepentant sin, and he's not allowed at the house anymore. That isolation and that hurt, I'm sure, would be felt differently than what we deal with in the West in a free society. 
To be honest with you, there are challenges in a large 21st century Western church that Paul could have never known, but the word is still the word. So, so how do we do this? What are we talking about? Well, first of all, we're not talking about our worship services because they're open. Anybody can come into this room. They're open because we want anybody to hear the word of God. In fact, there's only one reason someone would ever be excluded from one of our open public worship services, and that is if they posed a threat to someone else or they were disruptive, disruptive of the worship or the preaching of God's word, and that has never happened. Or if it has happened, it's always been dealt with with much grace and much kindness. So these services are open to anyone. So ultimately what Paul is talking about is excluding someone from membership, covenant membership, spiritual leadership, and intimate fellowship. I'll tell you the hard part, and this is where this sermon slams into the wall of reality, as it should. This is where somebody on the stage better be transparent with you or you ain't worth listening to. The hard part in the American church is that when we have members... I'm not talking about guests. I'm talking about somebody who signed a covenant and said, I follow Jesus, I've been baptized, and I profess the vision of this church as, as authority that I'm going to come under, and, and I'm here. When they do fall into sin and they're unrepentant, we often never get to this point because they ghost us. They just leave. I imagine that's what John was thinking when he said, they went out from us, for they were not of us. And that's hard. In fact, I can tell you of phone calls that are never returned. Emails written begging, come talk to us. Please meet with one of our counselors. How can we help you? We're not angry. We're hurt. We're not angry. How can we help you? And they just turned a blind eye or a deaf ear. And is that not what sin does? The deception of sin, when you give yourself to it, will convince you to not listen to the very sources of truth that want to help you. Yet all the more, this passage matters. It's why if you apply to be a member of Church at the Mill, the last question on the questionnaire says these words. If you are leaving, or if you're a member of another church, please give us a brief explanation as to why you're leaving your home church. Many of you came to our church from a church, and you did so with much prayer. There wasn't any animosity. There wasn't any conflict. But occasionally, someone will say, well, there's a situation. There's an issue. And what we do is we say, well, hey, we love you. And if God's will is for you to be here, we want to help you, but, but let's help you go back and reconcile. Several years ago, a woman joined our church, and she told me an incredible story of her life, a life of adultery and sin that she had repented from, but her church in another state had practiced church discipline on her. And she had become so broken and so restored, she wanted her old church to know what God had done. So she reached out to her old church and explained the situation And the pastor of that church and myself had a conversation. And she reached out to them and confessed her sin, asked for forgiveness, told them what God had done in her life to restore her. And then they gave her the blessing of joining our church. That's the way it's supposed to work. That's the idea. That's what we want. Because the temptation in a passage like this is to just drill down against the abuser, the offender. But we forget about the person that really matters. It was brought home to me in an email I received this week. I'd like to read it to you as I close. It's from a lady in our church who you would never pick out from a crowd. She's raised her own family now. She's happily married, and she's a committed follower of Jesus. And with her permission, she sent this to me and gave me permission to share. 
Good morning, DJ. I just wanted to drop you an email and let you know how much I appreciated the word Sunday. I am a survivor of child abuse. I was sexually, mentally, and physically abused as a child. This is a very unusual circumstance. My mom was gay, so my abuser was another woman. It caused me to live in constant fear as a child. But when I was seven, they decided to start bringing me to church. I still remember how I felt as I sat in Sunday school and children's church receiving the news of hope and love. I sat there and soaked all of this in like a sponge. It changed everything for me. Yes, the abuse continued for a while, but to know that God saw me and loved me was hope. Once I went down and accepted Christ, I knew I could depend on him to help me through all of this, and he did. I often have been asked by people, why didn't you tell someone, or how can you believe a good God would let this happen to a little girl? She writes, well, first, my abuser threatened violence if I told anyone. And as a child, I didn't have the ability to think beyond that. Second, I know sin exists in this world, and it breaks God's heart, especially when children are mistreated. I like to think, she writes, that God was right there beside me, saying, I know this is terrible, but I promise I'm going to get you through this. And he did. Exclamation point times four. There used to be a time when I thought about it every day, but as I have spent time with him, those memories are not as painful. When my mind goes there, I pray and direct my attention to my Savior. My life has not been all rainbows and roses since then, but knowing I have him makes me able to cope better. She ends with this sentence. Pastor, this is not my home so I can look forward to a place where there is no hurt and no one will ever hurt me. I wish I could tell you she was the only survivor that sent me a note last week. She was not. And as I read her email, I was moved by her testimony. It broke my heart to know the adults who were so lost that they would do that to a little girl. But you know what caught my attention as well? That little church she was carried to. I have no idea who taught that Sunday school class or who led that children's church service. I don't know the name of that church. I don't know the pastor, and I may never. They could have never known the nightmare she was living in. But they told her about Jesus. They told her she was loved. They told her he cared for her. And I'm sure if adults had known, they would have done more. And we are responsible to do everything within our limits of the law to protect. And that at times means confront and remove. And I promise you, we will. But we're not privy to every dark place people are living in. But we can share Christ with every child. When we have them, we can love them appropriately. When they're in our presence, we can touch them appropriately. When they sit beside us in small group and they weep and they never put words to what they're dealing with, 
we can be a friend to them appropriately. And as I picture classrooms all over our campus that look like this one, where children are being loved on and encouraged, it brought home to me the challenge today. It's a challenge to all of us to pray for and to protect the unity of our church. It starts with you and me looking in our own lives. It starts with making sure our past has been dealt with. Whether you were a survivor, you were the victim, you were exploited, but statistically some of you were the exploiter. You were a person you don't even recognize now. And at a time and a place in your past, you did some things that you don't even want to speak of. Friend, if you've not dealt with it, if you've not brought that before the Lord, if you've not been willing to understand that His grace is sufficient and it's sufficient for you, even if that means you may need to go reconcile to people that you thought you'd never mention their name again, I promise you, when you begin to step out on courage, God will do things in your life that you can never imagine. But the other responsibility is the corporate one. We are arrogant to think that the growth of our church makes us immune from something like this. It actually makes us more susceptible. I don't preach this message in reaction to any situation I'm hiding for you. I'm telling you that if the enemy wants to attack church at the mill, he's not going to come in our doctrine. I promise you, as long as, long as I'm your pastor, he's not going to move. He, he's not going to come in our lack of resources. Look around us. He's going to chip away at our purity and our holiness. He's going to let your compromise and your compromise and your compromise add up together. He's going to come, and I tell our pastors all the time, he's going to come after our marriages. There is a healthy fear in my heart to never be the guy that has to stand here and resign because of a sexual failure in my life. And I don't want to get away from that fear because the minute any man of God thinks he's above falling, he's on his way. And so for all of us as a people, I believe the best thing we can do to respond to such a hard message is to come before the Lord and say, Lord, this is hard, but it matters because you love us. It matters because victims need to become survivors. It matters because those who have sexual sin in their life that they are committing need to repent. It matters because those who have held themselves back because they choose to define themselves as leaven when God has said, you are now unleavened because the Passover lamb has been sacrificed. It matters. And so today we're going to end by praying together for the purity of our church. Would you stand with me? Please don't leave the room. And I want to invite our leaders to join me at the altar. Small group leaders, deacons, elders, student leaders, children's leaders. I want you to come and join me right now. And as they make their way to our altar here, if you want to come with them, you come. And I'd like for us to pray for the purity of our church and the purity of our lives. As they stand and kneel, you may choose to sit where you are or stand. You may come and ask for prayer. Any man or woman at this altar will be glad to pray for you. And if you want to pray with a pastor or a minister, our prayer room is ready and waiting. And no one will see you slip out and slip into there. But right now, corporately, we're going to end this chapter by praying for the purity of our church. Would you bow your head and bow your heart? Heavenly Father, this is a hard truth. But I have no interest in a facade. I'm not interested in faking it. I'm not interested 
and going through the motions. I'm not interested in a pretty, happy, polished church service that's not willing to deal with the reality that there's not a soul in this room that has not been touched by some form of sexual sin. We know that in this passage, you speak of other sins as well. Spiritual sins, selfish sins. You speak of social sins. Lord, we know that any sin, it doesn't have to be of a sexual nature. When it's left unchecked, it will rot us from the inside out. And so right now, humbly with these precious men and women who are the backbone of our church, I'm asking you. I know this is the second service, but this prayer is not manufactured. It's not scripted. And to be honest with you, I need to pray it twice. I'm asking you for the purity of our church. Lord, this is not a church with perfect people. We don't have a perfect pastor. And Lord, you ask us to be in a war with our sin. You're not looking for those to act as though they don't struggle. You're looking for men and women who are willing to admit they do struggle, but they fight with the Word of God and the Spirit of God and the truth of the gospel and the accountability of the brotherhood and the sisterhood in this room. We're not designed to fight alone. And Lord, having been exposed to what I've been exposed to and some work that I'm doing, I've just come to the reality that we need you more than ever to start in our own hearts to fight the battle of purity. That we need to celebrate the beautiful gift of sex within our marriages and inform and encourage our young people to save themselves for the provision that you have in the man or woman that you have given to them. And we need to say to a sin-sick, sexualized world, we're not angry at you, we're not mad at you, we don't even have the authority to judge you, but we have a Savior that is far better than any new definition you can come up with. We need to tell them that are confused, they don't need new organs, they need a new heart. We need to tell those who are lost in sin and have been given over to every desire that is opposed to your will, that Christ can make them new and through the repentance and the power of the Holy Spirit, though their struggle may never disappear on this side of heaven, they can walk in obedience to you. We need to tell a world, you don't have to obey your feelings. Obey the God of all feelings. And as you do, he will restore to you a joy that is deeper than your current emotional state. So, Lord, now I pray for our church. I pray for our small groups, many of which are brand new. I pray for our students and our children that we would be a people who humbly and honestly always deal biblically with our sin, even sin of a private and sexual nature. And that if we're ever put in that terrible situation of having to confront a brother or sister, we would do so with the heart of a broken believer longing for a person to repent and that you would bless our church not through arrogance, not through pride, not through resources and polished services, not through systems and processes, but that we would be known around town as a group of people who are holy because our God is holy and we are humble because our Savior humbled himself. Father, I pray for the marriages in this room that need to be restored. I pray for the porn addicts that need to come clean. I pray for the people that need to stop 
being defined by the decisions of their past. I pray that we would look again to the power of the cross, the shedding of the blood, the vacancy of the tomb, and a throne in heaven of a God who has called us to be the unleavened bread, willingly offered to him our great Passover lamb. And so, Father, the best way we know how, would you make us a pure and holy church and never allow us to feel as though we've arrived. But every day, go toe-to-toe with the enemy of our flesh and the enemy of Satan and enjoy the good gifts of your plan for sex and love and romance and embrace and encourage one another. And it is in the pure, holy name of Jesus who never sinned, though he knew it, who never failed, though he was tempted, yet was crucified for my darkest days and my deepest secrets. To that Savior be all glory and all honor.